this morning at the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll begin reading in verse 17 and read through to verse 34. The word of God says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, we took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of God. This morning is a a special service because you get two sermons for one visit this morning. Before you begin to check your phone and go, man, we've got to cancel our lunch plans. I already know Matt's long-winded to begin with. Think about two of them. The second message won't be a traditional one at all. No, this morning we get to celebrate together the Lord's Supper. And if you, if you saw in our reading in chapter 11, verse 26, we're told that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That the Lord's Supper is a message, an announcement, a second sermon in one sense that proclaims to us the death of Jesus. And as we prepare to take the supper today, I felt it was appropriate that we look again at what the supper means and reflect together on the message it proclaims. See, The Lord's Supper, depending on your background, may have been called by many names. Many will call it communion. Some backgrounds might use a term like the Eucharist, which comes from uh, the Greek word for thanksgiving. If you look in the scriptures, they often call it the breaking of bread. 
But what we know, regardless of what you call it, the Lord's Supper is one of two ordinances of the church. What an ordinance is, is simply something that God commanded for the church and the church alone to do. Something that the church alone has the command of God and the authority from God to do. And the two ordinances of the church are baptism and the Lord's Supper. You may have have thought about it this way, but baptism is an ordinance of entrance into the church. It's sort of the way that we welcome new believers into the body. Think of it almost like a wedding ceremony for a new believer, uniting them to a body and then declaring to the world they have united with Jesus. And that's part of the reason we only baptize people once. Right? Because in, in proclaiming your relationship with Jesus, you're, you're doing that. That has happened one time. But the Lord's Supper is more like vow renewal, an ongoing, regular reminder and recommitment both to Christ and to one another in the church. And Jesus and Paul give us a variety of instructions about baptism and the Lord's Supper. You may have come from a background where they refer to these things as sacraments, and I think that's an okay term. The word sacrament just means a holy or a sacred thing, and baptism and the Lord's Supper are that. They're ordinances commanded by God for us to do, and they are then, in a sense, sacred, but I tend to prefer the term ordinance that you'll hear me use, but... As we look at 1 Corinthians 11 this morning, Paul gives us his most detailed teaching on the Lord's Supper. And he wants to clarify both for the Corinthians and for us what the Supper is and why we're to take it. In fact, he answers, if you remember from school, the five big questions. The who, the what, the when, the where, the why. And we'll look at each of those in turns. If you didn't get them, that's okay. But the five big questions you ask any circumstance, right, is who, what, when, where, and why. And we'll look at those this morning. First, consider who is the supper for. Who is the supper for? And the answer is believing sinners. (laughs) Believing sinners. Let me tell you something. The Lord's Supper isn't for perfect people. If you come in here thinking that and you took it thinking, well, I'm good enough. I can, I've got, you walk in here with sort of a swagger of, hey, I, I'm doing all the right things. God's pleased with, with my works and everything. Friends, we've missed the point of this meal. Or if we come to the meal thinking that really, it's really only for the super Christians, not for me. Then friends, we've also missed the point because consider this. You don't have to go far in 1 Corinthians to see that, that this was for believing sinners to take. Paul gives, these, gives his correction and, and instructions to the church in Corinth, and you could really have called Corinth the church gone wild. The church gone wild. If you know much about them, you couldn't throw a rock in the Corinthian congregation without hitting a mess. You can read about in chapters 1 to 3 how the church was divided and the church was struggling to trust God's wisdom You can read in chapter 5 how there was a man in the Corinthian congregation that was having a very inappropriate relationship with his mother-in-law. You can read about how the church in chapter 7 was struggling to minister to a lot of singles that were in their church, unmarried folk. They're really struggling to figure that out. They had issues regarding people eating food sacrificed to idols. And to top it all off, chapter 11 to 14 talk about how there was all of this debate about head coverings and people speaking in tongues and prophecy. Like, it was just a mess. 
here in the church. And the, and the reminder for us is that Corinth was a church full of sinful people. And if you don't know, that's really the only kind of church there is. I don't know if you realize when you walked in here today that you walked in here with a group of sinful people. <laughs> and that there's no other kind of person that you're going to meet here today. The Lord's Supper is for the mess-ups, the confused the imperfect. And it isn't meant to be a guilt fest, as if we just are are eating the bread and drinking the cup going, man, look at how bad I am. But rather, it's not a reminder of our remaining sin, but a reminder of our canceled sin. It's a reminder for us that Jesus has died for us. The supper isn't just for sinners in general, but for believing Sinners, For those who have looked to Jesus and have believed on him and have said, Jesus, you're my only hope, my only stay, that there is nothing else that could wash away our sin. It's for those who have tasted and experienced of these incredible forgiveness of Jesus. Look at verse 23 to 25. These are probably the most important verses about the Lord's Supper that you'll find. Look at this. For I receive from the Lord... But also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That ultimately, the Lord's Supper is about the gospel. It's about the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what's meant to communicate, not through preached word, but through picture. Think about how baptism is declaring to the world what it means to die to self and to rise to newness of life. It reflects how Jesus was dead and buried and rose again and how we follow the same path. So the elements of the Lord's Supper proclaim to us his broken body in his shed blood. The Lord's Supper is for sinners who have believed in Jesus. We've seen the who. Now let's look at the what. The what. What do we eat and drink? What do we eat and drink? I want us to read again verses 23 to 25 because this is so important. Look what he says here. For I received from the Lord, but I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. Here he's quoting directly from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You'll see in your notes, the bread represents the body of Christ. The bread represents the body of Christ. And the drink, second, represents the blood of Christ, the body and the blood. We see that there in that passage we read. Now, Paul simply talks about the cup, doesn't he? He doesn't really tell us what was in the cup, right? Jesus does. When Jesus had the last supper with his disciples, after he had finished the meal, here's what he said. Here's what he said. This is Matthew 26, 29. He said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in 
my Father's kingdom. In other words, Jesus drank the fruit from a vine, from a grapevine. And you know that there's often churches you can go into where there's all sorts of discussions about should you have grape juice or should you have wine. And I don't remember seeing Paul or Jesus talk a lot about the alcohol content in what they were drinking at the Lord's Supper, right? I don't remember seeing them talk a lot about that, and I don't think it really makes a huge difference in the long run, nor do we know exactly how much Jesus had in the alcohol content in his drink that day. Whether you grew up having wine and grape juice or just grape juice or just wine, I think the fundamental point is that we're to drink the fruit of the vine. We're to drink the fruit of that's the fundamental point, and I think we're all on board with that. But even outside of the issues of wine and grape juice that have divided churches, unfortunately, throughout the centuries. There is a, a larger issue that has come up uh, regarding the Lord's Supper when we think about what exactly happens when we take the Lord's Supper. For example, you may come from a tradition or a background that believes that something substantially changes to that bread and that juice. When you take it, if you're, for example, from a Roman Catholic background, you might have have learned or been taught what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, that the bread and the wine change substance upon the blessing of a priest and become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Here's your $2 theological word for the day, and it's in your notes, transubstantiation. Big word, right? You can show that off at lunch today, right? And if you look at it, trans, change, transformation, right? And you kind of see the word substance there in in the last part of that, a change of substance. Let me give you an excerpt from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, quoting from the Council of Trent, and here's what what they teach about this. By By the consecration, the blessing, the transubstantiation of the blood and wine into the body and blood of Christ is brought about. Under the consecrated species of bread and wine, Christ himself, living and glorious, is present in a true, real, and substantial manner, his body and his blood, with his soul and his divinity. And now you're probably like, Pastor, why are you telling me this? Why does it it matter what others think about this? And it's because I believe this has direct implications on what we believe about a lot of other things. You'll see in your notes, why don't we believe that the bread and the drink change substance? Why don't we believe it? Well, first and foremost, transubstantiation contradicts the biblical view of salvation. Consider this. From the Roman perspective, when you take the bread and the wine, grace is infused into you, your sin is forgiven, and it actually becomes the basis by which you have a relationship with God. Let me, quote, let me give you a quote here. This again from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Here's what they say. Here's this. Communion with the body and blood of Christ increases the communicant's union with the Lord, forgives his venial sins, and preserves him from grave sins. Since receiving this sacrament strengthens the bonds of charity between the communicant and Christ, it also reinforces the unity of the church as the mystic goal body of Christ. And simply put, friends, this isn't what the Bible teaches about sin and salvation. The Bible doesn't teach that by taking of this bread and this juice that your sins will be forgiven today, but it's meant to be a reminder of the one who can forgive your sins today. 
It doesn't increase your right standing with God, but it's meant to recall to your mind the one who has purchased your right relationship with God that can be received by grace alone through faith alone. And I think to believe in transubstantiation consistently is ultimately to end up, if you follow the line of thinking, to deny much of what the Bible teaches about the gospel. So friends, it does matter what you think is happening in these moments when we take the bread and the cup. It matters a lot. Transubstantiation contradicts the biblical view of salvation. Second, transubstantiation contradicts the words of Paul and Jesus. Simply put, when you see Paul and Jesus drink the bread, or eat the bread and drink the wine, don't do it the other way, right? Eat the bread and drink the cup, they don't say any substance changes. In fact, Jesus, after the supper, holds up the cup, and what did he say? This I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine. He's saying, man, it's not changed. There's nothing different that has occurred. And finally, transubstantiation contradicts Jesus' use of figurative language. See, some people make a huge deal. They'll go, well, Jesus said, this is my body. And he did say that, right? But didn't Jesus say he is the door? And Jesus ain't back there on the way that you walked in today. He said, he is the way, the truth, the life. He is a shepherd. All of these things, Jesus spoke this way often, right? And he meant, he meant true and literal things, but he was using figurative language to get there. We all know that. We all understand that. I think it's easy to take Jesus at his word without inserting a whole lot of theology in there that Jesus didn't say, right? Inserting a whole lot of stuff in there. What is the supper? Ultimately, it's bread and juice that represents the body and the blood of Christ. We've looked at the who, the what. Now the third question, when? When should we take the supper? When should we take the Lord's Supper? And your answer, friends, often. Often. That's all we're told in the text, right? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. Look what it says. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Look at that. He says, do it often. And I'll say as your pastor, I've been here for a few months, and I've not done the best job at leading us to do this often. So, I'd first, so I would first apologize for that and also say that in the months and weeks ahead, we're going to be doing this often. Because Jesus said to do it often, right? We're told to do it often, and we want to do what Jesus said. And I even think a case could be made that many in the early church did this every time they got together. Consider Acts chapter 20, verse 7. This is one of my favorite passages because Paul is going to teach these folks he's gathered with, and he's going to end up preaching till midnight. Be glad you weren't in that service, right? And there's a young kid sitting in the back, and he falls asleep, and he falls out the window and dies and has to get raised back to life. Friends, this is not your preacher's life verse about prolonging his speech till midnight. But look what he says. On the first day of the week, when we, Luke and the disciples, were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. You see that? On the first day of the week, that's Sunday, not Monday. Jesus rose on the first day of the week. He rose on Sunday, and he made appearances Afterward, always on the first day of the week, 
Interestingly enough, in the church since the beginning has gathered on Sunday, the Lord's Day for worship, and they gathered with the purpose of breaking bread. It seems like this was one of the central parts of their gathering that was why they were there. If you have been in church a long time, you probably know Acts 2.42 that says that the disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to prayer, and to the breaking of of bread, which is the Lord's Supper. I think a case could be made for celebrating this every single week. I mean, we sing, we preach, we hear God's word read every week, and friends, none of us are saying, well, that might get a little old, right? If we had a baptism every week, none of us would ever be complaining. Man, I hate it that people are getting saved. Just awful. How, you know, just terrible, right? So, whether we end up doing it weekly or monthly, I would love for us as a church to begin to pray and journey about these things, to begin to pray, think about this. If you're someone that has very strong opinions one way or another, I'd love to hear from you, to think about this, to pray about this, because this is something that the Bible gives heavy weight toward thinking about. We want to do what God has told us to do, that's why we're here. So we need to give thought and careful prayer to this. When should we take the supper? Regardless of how you feel, we're told to take it often. And I think every six months and every quarter simply doesn't cut it. That simply isn't often, right? We need to take it regularly and often. The who, the what, the when, now the where. The where. Where should we take the supper? Where should we take the supper? Interestingly, As you read over our section from verses 17 to 34, you see a refrain five times of the words, when you come together. When you come together. Look with me at this. Verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, and that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And then 33 to 34, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the things, about the other things. I'll give you directions when I come. The Lord's Supper is meant to be taken together as a church. As a church. I think that's Paul's whole burden here. He's writing to them because the supper wasn't being taken together, but they were rather being divided and selfish. And he said, because of this, verse 17, he said, your getting together is actually for worse than for better. Y'all are doing more harm than good by going to church if y'all are going to be all divided and hoarding food for yourself and getting drunk in church. Just imagine what was going on here, right? Verse 18, he, or verse 20, he said that it was no longer the Lord's Supper they were eating that it ceased to be that because of the way they were divided and separated by this. And verse 18 said that that these divisions, it was because of these divisions among them that it ceased to be the Lord's Supper. And verse 19 told us that it wasn't even the necessary sort of divisions that you might have between Christians and non-Christians or any of that. This was sinful divisions between brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice verse 21. Look at this. For in eating, 
Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Often they, the early church would celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of a meal, and people were running ahead, taking food for themselves, and not even letting the person next to them get anything. And he said, this should not be. People were going ahead, hoarding bread and drink for themselves. They had made this meal about their physical body rather than about the church body. And Paul concludes in verse 33 saying, rather than rush ahead, wait for each other. The emphasis is clear. This meal is meant to be taken together, not divided or individually. The Lord's Supper is a family meal. Our faith family takes this together. And that's why I don't think the proper place for the Lord's Supper is in a small group or in family units, but rather when we come together in the gathering of the whole body. We've seen the who, the what, the when, the where, and now let's consider the why. Let's consider why do we take the Lord's Supper? We talked a little bit about this, but you'll see in your notes four points to conclude and to sort of prepare our hearts for this. First, consider that the Lord's Supper unifies the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper unifies the body of Christ. Remember, what makes it the Lord's Supper is that the Lord's people are taking it together. And I think that means that the first Corinthians would call us to lay aside any division we have with one another, to lay aside any sin we might have with each other and any strife we have toward one another. We're warned in this passage about coming to the supper divided by worldliness or by sinful judgment. Look in verse 27. These are some heavy words here. Look. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we might not be condemned along with the world. He says, in order to take this meal in a worthy manner, in the way that it's meant to be taken, he says, examine yourself. Check your hearts, your motives, sins in your life, and rather than cling to them, he says, repent of them and let them be covered by the blood of Jesus. Let it go if you and the person next to you have some sort of feud. Let it go. Let it go and set it Aside, He says, verse 29, that we are to discern the body, or your translation might say judge the body. And he says, this is why some in their congregation were sick and some even died because they failed to discern the body. That'll grow your Sunday morning attendance, won't it? The God has died right there. And they had failed to give consideration to other believers in the body. They were all about themselves, but they also had failed to give consideration to others who may have been a part of their body, but might not have actually been a believer in Jesus. And they were likely encouraging and allowing them to take the supper. Discerning the body requires you to know the body. 
Friends, think about it. Do you know the people you worship next to you on Sunday? And I don't mean the people you came in the car with, because that's not really fair, right? But do you know the folks on the other side of the room? Do you know the folks that sit way behind you? Do you know folks that, that, that are even new here that you're like, oh, I don't know them? I know some of you, when you have me, when I, I'll notice I'll have a volunteer put up their hand and go, hey, put up your, put up your hand, because there's lots of new faces who don't know who everybody is. And do we know each other's hearts, each other's struggles, each other's weaknesses, each other's sins? And it was because the Corinthians had not discerned the body that he says they were guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Because they didn't know each other and they didn't really care to know each other. They were just going to let whatever happened, happen. And it says the Lord disciplined them so that they might not be condemned. May that not be said of us that the Lord's Supper is meant to unify the body of Christ. Second, the Lord's Supper proclaims the message of Christ. It proclaims the message of Christ. Verse 26, again, you saw this. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here we see that the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to send a message both to ourselves and to any who might be watching us take it. And it's here to proclaim the Lord's death. Many of us don't think that the Lord's Supper is evangelistic, but it is. It's meant to say to the world, this is what Jesus has done for you. Come to him and find life. And the the Lord's Supper shouts, God died. It, It announces that there is nothing that can take away our sin but the blood of Jesus. That as we sang, that in Christ alone our hope is found. It proclaims the simple but profound news that Jesus died for sinners. And the bread broken, his body broken for us, the juice, his blood poured out to forgive sins, and the Lord's Supper is talking to you to come to Christ and live. And it would proclaim to you who maybe aren't a Christian or maybe don't have really a lot of assurance in your relationship with God, it's talking to you. And the the passage before us would say, hey, instead of taking the supper It would say, leave it in your seat and instead listen and observe. Listen and observe and reflect with us because God wants to talk to you about something. God wants to say, here is what my son has done for you. Come to him and find life. The Lord's Supper proclaims the message of Christ. Third, the Lord's Supper remembers the work of Christ. Have you ever heard someone say, or maybe you're this person that says, I'm really more of a visual learner? Or do you say, hey, could you draw a picture for me? The Lord's Supper is exactly that. It's a visual for you. In the bread and the cup of Jesus dying for your sins, that you might have eternal life. Think about John 3.16, the most popular Bible verse that there is. We probably all have at least some familiarity with it, right? For God so loved the world, and he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. The Lord's Supper is John 3.16 in picture form. It's John 3.16 in terms of something you can tangibly feel and touch And understand, and by this supper, we remember Christ, all that he is, and all that he's done. 
The supper should draw our hearts and our minds away from the current state of the world and toward gospel realities that transcend everything else. And I almost added to this a sixth point. I really did. I was this close. I had a lot of people say you should of the how to take the supper. Because, friends, we're not simply meant to idly take this meal. Just go, well, okay, I got my thing. Okay, I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to wait for the pastor to put my mouth. And I'm just going to sort of idly receive this. No, we are called to engage in the work of actively reflecting upon Christ. Of having our minds engaged as we're doing this and thinking about what this means. That he lived for us, he died for us, and he emptied the grave for us. Our minds are called to be engaged and wrapped around this. We're not meant to be idle as we take this. But we're called to actively remember Christ. And fourth, and finally, the Lord's Supper draws believers to Christ. Our last point actually comes from the chapter before in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which is actually where he kind of begins some of his discussion about the supper and worship and lots of issues that were going on. In the Corinthian congregation, look what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. Look at this. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are of one body, for we all partake of one blood. You'll see on the screen there the key word for participation is, is participation. In the Greek there is koinonia or fellowship or partnership. There's a real sense in, in which when we take the supper, Christ draws near to us by faith and we draw near to him through faith. There's something unique happening when we do this. Sure, People say, Jesus is everywhere. Yes, he is. And Jesus is with you all the time. But the Bible seems to speak that he comes to gather with us in a different and unique way when we as the people of God come together. That he is here in a particular and a unique way and in another very special way when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And family, that means Jesus is here. And that means we should approach the supper with a serious joy. Serious, because Jesus himself comes to be with us as we do this, the King of kings and Lord of lords, but with joy, because he has died for us, and he loves us and has resurrected on behalf of us a serious joy. And this is why this is a meal for believers to enjoy. I'd ask if you are not somebody who has professed faith in Christ that you would leave the cup in your seat, just leave it in your chair, and that you'd open your eyes and your ears as Christ is proclaimed to you through the supper. His body was broken and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And he rose again from the dead so that sinners like you and I could be received into relationship with God and that the grave could be emptied of its power. Friends, God wants to speak to you this morning both through me and his word and through the supper to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you are a follower of Christ, I want you to prepare your hearts. I invite you to prepare your hearts during these next few moments to take the supper. We're going to take the bread together and the cup together, so I want you to wait, as the scripture says, we wait on one another and we do this together, right? 
And as we wait, we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate. We're going to repent. We're going to rejoice. We're going to look to Jesus as our hope and our security. And we're going to put this sermon into practice by preparing ourselves to take the supper, by actively engaging our mind on this, and in hearing and proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are good and kind. I ask that you would prepare our hearts to eat this bread and drink this cup in a worthy manner, that we would do it in a way that would honor and glorify you, that you would speak to the lost here through it today and draw them to yourself. And Lord, there's no greater news than that we can have participation, fellowship, draw near to you in these moments, prepare our hearts and help us to actively reflect and think on these things. And we, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1 Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thankful to have gathered together to be able to do that, to proclaim that message in word and in bread and drink. And we close our service with a benediction, a blessing as we head out uh, into the week. This from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.